Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual prizes, as well as discussions with book lovers from across the country. This week, you'll hear a conversation from our November 2021 storied event. Storied is a monthly event series that features discussions about craft, creativity, and publishing. The discussion you'll hear in this episode features Bryony e. Penn, author of Following the Good River, The Life and Times of Wahade, and David McElraith, editor of The Diary of Duke Sang Wong, a voice from Gold Mountain. They discuss creative collaborations with Carol Shaman. Carol will introduce Bryony e. and David, but let me tell you a little bit about Carol. Carol is an award-winning journalist and author. Her first book, Into the Abyss, was a national bestseller and national nonfiction award winner. And her most recent book, The Marriott Cell, co-written with journalist Mohamed Fami, was longlisted for the 2018 RBC Taylor Prize and named one of the Globe and Mail's 100 Best Books of the Year. She is the recipient of two national magazine awards, including a gold medal for investigative journalism. Carol teaches creative literary nonfiction at UBC's School of Creative Writing and Journalism and is a faculty editor for the BAMP Center's Literary Journalism Program. Here's Carol to start the discussion. I'm really excited about this event. And uh, before I introduce Bryony e. and David, I just want to acknowledge that I live, learn, and breathe on the traditional, ancestral, unceded Coast Salish lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish people. So without further ado, let me introduce these fabulous two authors that we have with us tonight. Bryony e. Penn is a naturalist, geographer, artist, and award-winning writer of creative nonfiction books, as well as a contributor to many anthologies and chapter books. She's been a feature writer and nature columnist for 25 years, and is also a multi-BC and Yukon Book Prize finalist and winner for her books about the coast, its diversity of inhabitants, and their deep connections to one another. Her most recent book, Following the Good River, the Life and Times of Wahed, co-authored with Cecil Paul, is a collaborative biography featuring the trials, tribulations, endurance, forgiveness, and survival of one of North America's more prominent Indigenous leaders. Bryony lives on Wasainich territory on Salt Spring Island. David McElraith spent a decade searching for editing and researching the only known first-person account of the Chinese experience building transcontinental railways across the continent. His recent book, The Diary of Duke Sang Wong, tells a one-of-a-kind, 50-year-long story of a man's extraordinary life in China and Canada. David began telling stories as an actor and director in theatres across North America, then as a documentary filmmaker, writing and directing award-nominated films like The Lynching of Louis Sam and Celeste Found. He was the host and contributing writer-producer of the Discovery Channel series, Harrowsmith Country Life. And since publication of Wong's Diary by Vancouver's Talent Books, David has turned his hand to fiction. He was a Vancouver resident for several years and now is coming to us from Hamilton, Ontario, but he does spend part of every summer on Salt Spring Island. So welcome to you both. So I'd like to begin tonight's event by asking both of our authors to give us a short reading from their book. So perhaps, Bryony, you could lead us off with a, a reading from your book. Great. Thanks, Carol. I picked a, I picked a selection that is towards the end of the book. Um, and I want people to kind of imagine that um, Cecil Paul and I are sitting watching t TV together and it's the Queen's 90th birthday and um, Cecil turns to me and he says um, I don't want to watch she is your queen and then tells me the story of how so many of his his uh, relatives and different representatives of his nation had been snubbed by the royals over the centuries. 
And so there was a uh, opportunity that came up when um, Prince William was coming to visit Balabella. And so he asked one of the young council members there whether, and she runs a community library there, whether she would ask them for an apology because she was going to meet them in Bella Bella and, and introduce them to the community. And he said, this, maybe you could ask them for an apology because the apology has never been given for the residential schools and also for snubbing the, these, you know, delegations over the years. And then he hears that, uh, so this is the context I'm setting it up for the, this piece. While we're hearing about the uh, the burning down of the school too, uh, there's been a fire in Bella Bella and that community library has burnt down and it's a big loss to the community. Okay, so that's the context for this piece. Kitimat, May 23rd, 2016. Cecil is sorting out his two full shelves of books, more than one would expect for someone who doesn't read. Most of the books feature the kitlope. He's in a lot of them, smiling, fishing, telling stories, welcoming people to the biggest unlogged but not untouched temperate rainforest watershed on the planet. The books are gifts from the many people from across the country and around the world who interviewed or photographed the Kitlope and the Great Bear Rainforest over the years. He is sorting them for Jesse Housty and Bella Bella. Earlier this year, a fire ripped through Jess's library of books for the community. She put out the call to friends far and wide to send books to replace the losses. Cecil decided to pack his books up and send them to help her replace the library. His ties to Bella Bella are strong. The Chaltzik name for Bella Bella is Waglisla, and Waglisla is a four-day paddle down Douglas Channel, left down Finlayson Channel. Cecil's brother Douglas married a Chaltzik woman, and the Heisland Chaltzik languages share words, structures, stories, songs, and now books. His two boxes of books weighed in at over 50 pounds. It was going to be a steep postal bill. So we foraged for Coca-Cola cans to get some cash. Cecil's relationship to sugared water and aluminum cans is about as long, torturous, and paradoxical as the relationship to the royal family. When George Vancouver's deputy, Joseph Whidbey, first arrived in Gardner Canal, he commented that the Heisla chief at the time, who had appeared very fond of bread and sugar, he preferred the latter and seemed greatly astonished at the taste of it. Given that the Europeans had received 70-pound Chinook salmon for a cup of sugared water, the Heisla did very poorly out of the exchange. Chinook salmon is one of the perfect food sources of the world. It's a large fish that forages in the ocean for over five years, packing on essential omega-3 oils and vitamin B3 and D before returning to the river of its birth. Chinook start returning at the end of June to the Gardner Canal, peaking in the Kitlope around July 16th, when they swim straight by Cecil's cabin on the river. The introduction of sugared water, in particular Coca-Cola, with the added drug of caffeine, left many Heisla with an addiction, debt, and diabetes. While the gift of the Chinook enabled the Europeans to grab a free resource packed full of life-giving oils that generated an international market for a century. As for aluminum cans, packaging the addictive sugared and caffeinated water in a material that requires the destruction of fish habitat ensures constant demand and destroys the competition. It was a Machiavellian exchange. But for the perfect Cecil paradox, one of the big donors of the Kitlop campaign to the Nanakila Society was Glenn Candler Fuller, heiress to part of the Coca-Cola fortune. She spent a month up in the kitlope with Cecil when she was dying of cancer. Glenn set up the Sweetgrass Foundation in the spring of 1992 to support ecological health and Indigenous cultures throughout the world. She kicked it off with an endowment that had come down the line to her from her great-grandfather, Aza Candler Sr., founder of Coca-Cola. When she died in 2006 from cancer, friends and family doubled the foundation endowment so Sweetgrass now annually disperses millions to mitigate the impacts of its own globalization. Cecil and I gathered several hundred Coke cans, loaded them up, and took them to the bottle recycling depot in Kitimat on an unseasonably hot day in May. After picking them up and sorting them, we were as red and as sticky as the cans. The final tally bought those books a boat ride to Bella Bella by surface post. I'll jump forward. When the books arrived, Jess sent a note to her social network telling us about the arrival of the books. She photographed them as they came out of the books. 
Title for title, they were similar to the books, now burned, given to her by Ed Martin, a Celtic elder who fulfilled the same role for the kids of Bella Bella as Cecil did for the Kitlow. Ed had also been at Alberni Residential School, had never been taught to read, and was a loving presence in those young people's lives. The Queen still hasn't apologized. Someone will one day. And if Jessie doesn't succeed, she will find someone else to pick up the torch. Most people underestimate the resilience of the coastal network. Thank you. Thank you. David, I'd like to invite you to, to do a reading from, from your book. Okay. I'll start with a couple of paragraphs of the introduction just to, to set up what the book is. In the spring of the year, 1867, in a Chinese village, a long day's journey north from the capital city. A local family hosted a banquet. In all likelihood, the regional magistrate, an officer of the imperial court, was given the place of honor at the banquet table. As if his position in the community were not reason enough for the seat of honor, just a few days earlier, he had ruled in favor of his host in a land dispute. The magistrate couldn't possibly have suspected that the food set before him that night would be laced with arsenic, and that he would die before the sun rose the next morning. The magistrate's only son was 21 years old that spring. He was deeply affected by his father's death. In the days and weeks following the poisoning, he began to keep a diary, a record of his grief and confusion during a tragic time in his young life. He would continue to keep the diary through tragedy and triumph, for five more decades. For over 50 years, Duke Sang Wong made compelling and eloquent entries in his notebooks, first about his life as a young man in Imperial China, and then about the life he went on to live half a world away on a continent he called the Land of the Golden Mountains. Little did he know that more than 150 years later, his diary would become the only primary source, the only known voice, for thousands of his generation. Now I'm going to read a, some quotes from the diary itself. Um, he started the diary uh, in China and uh, stayed, uh, wrote in China for 12 years before making the move to North America and continued di the diary there. Uh, he ended up working on the Canadian Pacific Railroad construction. And these quotes are from that period. Autumn, 1883, British Columbia. My soul cries out. I wish I had never experienced such bad days as those in which we now live. Many of our people have been so very ill for such a long time, and there's been no medicine nor good food to give them. Even the strongest of us are weak without medicine to fight against these diseases, which spread very rapidly. It is such a sorrowful sight. Spring. 1884. These are troubled times for us Chinese, but how does anyone work when so ill? Many are killed when such words are spoken, and we are becoming more like dogs, biting at one another. My attempts at speaking are senseless. My words mean less than nothing. I am so little help to everyone. Late summer, 1885. I am truly alone amid the dying. The leaders of the white people demand money, our poor savings, taken from we who have so little, given to those who are not so taxed. Some who are very ill have taken to spending their days in the opium shacks, with little food and even less strength. This is a bad omen. Spring 1886. There is so much work to be done and not enough people to labor at it. So many of us Chinese suffered and died recently, I cannot recount them all. But the Western people will not allow us to land here any longer, while they scold us for not working enough. Now these acts wear my soul down to nothing. The laws the white people have enacted prohibit any further landing of our people, and I cannot understand why. The work is great, and there aren't enough laborers. But my words are meaningless and my strength to speak now falls upon deaf ears and closed eyes. These mighty lands are great to gaze upon, 
But the laws made here are so small. And just to assure you that it isn't all that bleak, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'll read you from uh, something from the end of the book, down the end of the diaries, uh, two brief sections. Spring 1916. Sadness fills so much of me, yet joy is in my soul in these warm days. Second son has left with the missionary ship to journey to the homeland. His going leaves us with such heavy hearts, for I already feel that I shall not hear his laughter again. I have allowed his journey, as a man must cease to linger in his home when searching for knowledge, though I greatly fear his search will lead him to much physical pain. Third son departs soon to enter university in the eastern part of these lands. His abilities and learning are high, and I am humbled by the honor which he has achieved in attending university. There is a zeal in his desire to help the ill and the ailing, and it is unworthy of me to wish to hold him here for fear the Western government will send him to fight in France like so many others. It is said that the old ways cannot always last and that people must change and be continuously renewed. I have even taught this, yet I fear that I cannot change enough for this new world. And then the final entry in the diary. Autumn, 1918. It is still the feast of the full moon. I am doubly blessed, for in my desires, I have both prayed to the Christian God and allowed incense to be burned in our garden. My fate now has provided a daughter, a precious eighth child, a great joy for all this house. Her brothers will know this goodness and take good care of her, loving her. She has come in my old age, a joyous sign, and she will be able to bring me pride I know. It is good. Her brothers are men now, so she will be assured a good life. She will look after Lynn when I leave these lands for the final journey homeward. Thank you. Thank you both of you. Reading these books, I was struck by this kind of intimacy um, that you both, both brought to these stories. And, and having collaborated, um, I know that collaborations are often very difficult terrain. This is fraught territory. And yet both of you seem to have navigated this territory, this terrain. Um, and I, my, my first question is, how do you approach with, with, how do you do justice to the stories of others who have, in, in this case, you know, in Brianne, in your case, you're, you're collaborating with an Indigenous elder. In your case, David, you're in conversation with a, with a, a, a you know, an Asian Canadian who's long since passed away, who you've never met. And yet you bring this kind of quality of sensitivity um, to the work. How do you navigate this as someone coming at this, this collaboration from a white kind of settler perspective and working across cultures? Brianne, do you want to start us off? Well, it's a very simple answer. It was really, Cecil, how can I put this? Cecil had a, uh, a great oratorial gift and realized that, you know, a lot of the teachings that he had, he couldn't write them down. So he needed someone to write them down. So ask me and I'm, that's what I do. So that's a simple answer. <laughs> the, there's a second part to that answer, which is his desire was to try and communicate to people the stories of his life so that they could understand better what had gone on over the last century. And that his stories um, may not be entirely um, believed or understood as he as he observed is that people he said you know people you know you need your you know like you you want numbers and you need the the written documents and you need you need the evidence and set so it was he he asked me if i could write the corresponding essays that would validate his story so for example it's one of the reasons why i picked that the that story was that you know captain vancouver 
indeed turned up and named Gardner Canal. I mean, it was pushed to wash too, but he named it Gardner Canal. And he indeed wrote down in his journal that there was two Chinook salmon presented um, to his one of his Captain um, Whidbey. But that same story came down through oral tradition and it was, you know, absolutely verified the written story and the, and, and the oral story. So he felt that people's understanding of history would be enhanced by having two worldviews approaching the same period and that maybe it would bring some empathy to understanding what in fact had gone on. And so this was really done out of Cecil's desire to communicate well, start where people are at and people might be at historic evidence and, and documents. And so uh, because also his philosophy of we're in a dire time, we have got to all step into the magic canoe and work together. Um, I was invited into the canoe and um, indeed accepted that invitation to, to bring my skills to the job. And he brought his skills, I brought my skills and that was, we paddled together. Thank you. Um, I mean, it's interesting when you're you're approached, you know, and, and by by the, you know, by your collaborator who asks you. There's a kind of permission there. David, you didn't have that. You you were you know you kind of went in search of this story, and you're trying to navigate with a, the diary of of Duke Song Wong and also collaborate with his granddaughter. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges and, and uh, of navigating that territory? Mm. Um, well, it's interesting. I was, I was interested to hear Bryony say that, uh, that uh, uh, her collaborator wanted to tell, wanted the story told well, but I didn't have anyone to say that to me. Um, and I, and, and, and my first instinct when I, uh, when I first saw the diaries and read them was that, that he has told the story as well as anyone possibly could. So there was not much more work for me to do. Um, but the, but the, pro the process, um, that I, that I underwent in, in, in collaborating with this person that I didn't know began before I even had any idea that, that the diaries existed. And that was, um, uh, you know, my conviction that that um, this was a, that the stories of the uh, of the Chinese railway workers and others, um, many others, in in North America in the in the uh, the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, um, was a truly untold story, and that um, you know I'm just going to actually read a, a quick little piece here that uh, I think will help. To, to explain that um, from the book, if you don't mind. Uh, first person accounts of the Chinese workers who built railways across the North American continent are not supposed to exist. Canadian historian Pierre Burton wrote in the last spike published in 1971 that, quote, such details were not set down and so are lost forever, lost and forgotten, like the crumbling bones that lie in unmarked graves. In a May 2019 New York Times piece, American historian Andrew Graybill wrote that, quote, the lived experience of the railroad Chinese has long been elusive, partly because no sources written in their own hand survive. Well, the notion that no primary sources exist because no one ever set words to paper, or that whatever was written had been lost, just seemed unlikely to me. There were 17 thousand Chinese workers who came to Canada to work on the railway. And I know that among them were, were scribes and teachers and pharmacists and, you know. All. So that notion that nothing existed um, was a driving force for me. I, I just couldn't believe that it was true. And I had worked, uh, you know, I, I, you mentioned the films that I had done, I, both of which were based on documentary evidence. So I set out to find the diary before I even knew that it existed, and I hoped that it did. And sure enough, I did find the diary and, and realized instantly, 
and I'll talk about, you know, the meeting with, with his granddaughter in a second, but realized instantly that not only <laughs> was there a voice, was there a, a piece of writing that existed uh, by a, a Chinese um, writer of the time, but that something extraordinary had been written by him, that it, that it was poetic and eloquent and informative and political and you know, all those things. Um, so it was a daunting task, absolutely a daunting task to be dealing with something that was so fine, so well written, so beautifully told, as I'm sure, you know, the same was true with Bryony and, and, you know, working with her collaborators. So basically, the, 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 the only path available to me was to let him tell his story by publishing the diaries, um, while realizing that much uh, uh, that was in those diaries uh, had no context, uh, that, out, that out of context, uh, it was maybe beautiful writing, but it, it, did, it, 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 it wasn't definable in, in, in a concrete way. So I realized that my role was to spend a lot of my life researching in order to make to give clarity to the extraordinary things that he said. Um, the process of, of coming to the understanding of what he, he said in, in, involved very much collaboration, not only with him and his words, but with the, the, the woman who's, uh, who saved the diary, essentially. Her name was Wanda Joy Ho, is Wanda Joy Ho. She uh, is Duke Sang Wong's granddaughter. And when she was a graduate student at, the, at uh, Simon Fraser University, she wrote a paper um, in which she asked the professor if, uh, if the majority of the paper could be translations of her grandfather's diaries. And he was so impressed that a diary existed that he uh, said yes. And so she wrote 58 pages uh, of the diary with, with little notes she scribbled inside as well for, for some clarification. So over the process of, of working on the book, I had her uh, as a collaborator, <clears throat> even though she lives in Ottawa and has for many years been ill with multiple illnesses, not the least of which is diabetes. And for some of the time that we, I was working on the book, she was actually in a diabetic coma. But whenever I could, whenever I was able, I would go to Ottawa and uh, and sit with her and we would go through the diaries together and she would say oh I don't uh, you know what I don't know what that means but it could be this or she would say oh yes there's you know this or that and I remember that my grandmother talking about that and 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 sometimes she would say oh, quite honestly I have no idea what that's about I have no idea what he what that's talking about he died 14 years before she was even born so all of it was hearsay for her, but you know her input was was huge, and her sense of of what she carried with her, and and the, what she what meant so much to her about her grandfather, like his commitment to education, things like that, she presented constantly to me and and in our conversations. So it was a collaboration a with her, and b with him. <laughs> And thank you for that. I mean, it's interesting, too, that Brienne mentioned that, you know, there was this this idea of two worldviews, you know, that that your collaborator, you know, Wahe wanted these these two views to kind of to, to find their way into the world. And what I find interesting about both of your works is that you you know, there is the there is the voice of the the primary kind of the protagonist, if you will. And then there's the kind of the research and perspective that you bring to the work to kind of bring it into context, to kind of, you know, deepen our understanding. So you're a bit of a cultural guide as well in the work that you're doing. And I found that the research that you each wove into, into, into the work you did so edifying and so expansive in terms of what it did to the story. Do, do you want to comment on that? on that whole, and there was a lot of research too. So I don't know who wants to start off there, but talk about the process of research and what your research and perspective brought to the story of, of your protagonist, do you think? Maybe I can just jump in because I wasn't sure that 
uh, David, you mentioned something about, um, you know, that he wanted it to be done well. There was no, I hope I didn't imply that Jesus' uh, storytelling isn't um, masterful. No, on the contrary. Um, I understood. And, and in fact, it was an entire book. It was just his stories. It, it, it was the context of the time. It was, it was also... It was also the records, the historic records that he had no access to um, because he had never been taught to read or write through the residential school process. He was, he was really curious, you know, what was going on? Yeah. You know, and, and really wanted the context of that time to, to be revealed. Um, he wanted to look at, he wanted me to find the surveyor's correspondence or the Indian agent's correspondence with, you know, his ancestors to find out what actually were they saying? You know, I would read letters and, you know, your obedient servant. And he would, so the, the creating the, con- it was a, it was also, um, it was also for me to bring my gift to him, which was to share what was going on. What were the world forces going on that had picked you know, his Huawei's in, in Kitimat in 1948 um, to turn it into, you know, one of the world superpowers sources of, of aluminum. <clears throat> that was one of the largest projects in the world happened to come right through his, his own territory, his mountain, as he said. Cecil never had access to the documents I had access to. And so part of this was for me to bring some reciprocity to the relationship his teaching to me of the land, my teaching to him of my colonial culture. And so really, I hope that the book reflects that this is a, a reciprocity of explaining our two, our two respective worlds to one another. And, and also for the reader, because the gift that he brings is that we are in trouble and his culture is resilient and has been through all these things before. And that there is a lot to offer from this culture. Um, it's it is the culture that we need to to look to to see how you face um, anything from epidemic to um, shifting climatic forces that are are you know I mean his his stories go back nine thousand years um, to a time when you know talk about climate change. I mean he's he's you know, when you've got an oral tradition that, that encompasses adaptations to tsunamis and adaptations to huge changes in, in ecosystems because you're living at the edge of the ice and as it retreats, you're, you're looking at all these adaptations. So, and also the, the ability of how you, in, when you're under um, regimes of colonization, how you, how you, um, conduct yourself i mean it, it, in terms of being a, a, a the equivalent metaphor that he always used is that you know when you're when you're paddling up a very very turbulent current and you've got a lot of people in that canoe it requires so such complex relationships and such nuance and such ability to to hear one another because everybody's got a, a very specific role that's got to be you know, so I think all these things were what he wanted to communicate um, in any the best way that the reader could hear. It was always like, you know, people need to they sometimes they need to wash their ears in, in order to be able to hear things in a different way. But I was very anxious that that um, uh, the context could be provided to them in a way that that, that was, you know, understandable to them. And I think that, I mean, you've just done that. You've just, you know, in the, for us, given so much context to the, your process. And I, I think that's what our work is about, isn't it? Because they have, they have the story. It's their lives that are being ex- exposed here. They may not have the resources to be able to do it entirely themselves, but, but, um, you know, fortunately for them, they have you, and hopefully, <laughs> fortunately, they have me um, to provide some context for that. And, and because outside of 
the context. You know, and, and in fact, I have to admit that even for myself, when I first started, when I first had the diaries in my hand and I was reading them, I was uh, so struck by the fact that it existed, <laughs> that there were words there that were being spoken, that were spoken by this man, you know, 150 years ago. Or um, At the time, I think I was more, much more interested in that fact than I was in, in the the exposure that he created about himself, about mm-hmm. his heart and about, about his experience in, in the world and in a world that, you know, not unlike, not unlike your situation was, was um, a, a racist world, um, a, a world that, uh, that it was not a, a, a pretty place to be in. And yet, you know, he had a, a firm conviction that he had his place in this world. And, and he went on and lived it and he lived it wonderfully. And, you know, he, he after those, those dreadful stories about his work in, on the railway and the horrors that he experienced there, he went on to become a successful tailor, run a successful business, be a leader in his community, be the, the principal of the Chinese school to raise eight children, all of whom went to... Uh, to some degree of post-secondary education, that when all of that is taken as a whole and not seen as as really interesting language, you know, in this diary, but it's put together as a whole, it's an extraordinary story. Both both of them are extraordinary stories that need desperately need to be te- to be told and to be read by you know by our by our readers. You know, well said. I think we're in a time, and both of your books seem so timely for that reason. I mean, we're in a time of reconciliation. We're in a time where the anti-Asian backlash because of COVID has never been so high, although, you know, your book shows it's been, it was ever thus. I mean, we have, as a country, I think... Um, you know, a vision of ourselves that we're starting to realize is not accurate. And so, you know, your books at this time, I mean, I'd love to hear you kind of talk about what, how you feel, how, you know, what you feel these voices that would be otherwise lost to history or, you know, unheard, these oppressed voices, these overlooked voices, I mean, what that means to our sense of, progress and identity and kind of forward motion as a country? Um, Thanks, Carol. That's a great question. I often, almost daily, I hear a news item and I think, well, I wish wish Cecil was here. Um, The thing that I wish actually more than anything um, is, is that There are Cecils in every nation of this country. And I wish and I hope that when, if people read this story, you know, it was his wish always for when people walked by and they, they, you know, they would say, oh, there's the drunken Indian. It was his wish that after reading this book, people would stop and pause for a second. And, and, if, if nothing else, just to pause and maybe to, to, to ponder um, why that person is there. Um, you know, he was 40 years an alcoholic. And so he was prescient about so many issues that we're, we're dealing with now, whether it's the addictions, whether it's isolation, whether it's, you know, reaction and, and trauma whether it's climatic things induced by climate change or it's, you know, from the trauma of just going through epidemics or, or all, all these things. I mean, the, the protesters at Ferry Creek, I mean, you name it. He's been, and he's, he has some relevance to the discussion, first and foremost, because he is able to, to link and connect the dots between um, racism and capitalism and um, and and our environmental impacts and the fact that colonization's desire to create 
cheap labor and easy access between market resource has had such a cost for both of our both of the 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 authors of these of these um, journals and they are the voices of the cost of capitalism and yet out of it out of these these individuals deep resilience often culturally gifted resilience they have the voices that should be speaking to us so strongly now about how we can you know there's an invitation for example is an invitation in Cecil's words to walk with him to come and paddle with him to see how that when we do actually work together we can resolve and we can we can work through these problems so daily I feel that Cecil's stories are are offering us some guidance and some consolation and some some direction all of that was incredibly well said really i admire your um optimism <laughs> in a very pessimistic time <laughs> i do i you know i i, I think that uh I, I, carol you said um it was ever thus earlier and sadly that's the truth, isn't it? That we're telling these stories of these despicable situations 150 years ago during times when, when you know, despicable things are happening here. Or at least the discovery of despicable things are happening here. But both cases, I think, and I shouldn't speak for, for the Indigenous situation, but, the, I mean, my experience throughout this process has been that what I've discovered is the word erasure, which I hadn't really, I think, seen clearly enough before, that the effort that was made by the settler mentality over all those years to erase these people from our history and our landscape. You know, as 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 I I mean, I tell stories in in the book about the burning down of of Chinatowns, the the shipping out of of whole populations out of uh, out of town, out of state, out of province, um, and what that process did. For example, the, the famous case of the, what they call the Tacoma method, which was used in Canada as much as it was in the United States, but which, which happened in Tacoma, Washington, when 200 Chinese people were forced out of the town that they lived in, the Chinatown that they had created within Tacoma, by the finest citizens of the city, put on a train and sent out of the state. And the next morning, the entire Chinatown and all of the contents of its buildings were burned down. And among those contents... I'm convinced were the writings of lots of people who were literate and could write and the drawings and the thoughts, all of which was erased. Uh, and we uh, lived with that. I mean, and we know how, how desperately the governments tried to erase indigenous culture in our country. So it's it's so important that we understand not that we're a racist society particularly but that we that we perpetuate that that erasure and that history in ways that we haven't even begun to understand yet well i, I go ahead Brianna. no it's going to just really recall a very beautiful moment when um, Cecil shared with me that the only place he could ever uh, get anything to get a coffee was in a Chinese restaurant. So we went to one of the <laughs> restaurants in Prince Rupert <laughs> that he right. always used to go to when he was fishing. He walked in and you, out from the kitchen, uh, Pansy, I think, um, arrived with a cup of coffee with three tablespoons of sugar in it which was his uh go-to and and it was just in that moment I it was just I mean for me this was just my you know my eyes opening up about the, the incredibly strong ties between all the the different minorities Chinese Japanese I mean they'd all been put in different yep. you know um it, and the canneries it was sort of 
the, the chink house and the Jap house and the, you know, and so these friendships and the solidarity and the friend, uh, it was also a really big part of. Yeah. And, and many of the, you know, uh, when they, when the after the last bike, well, even before the last bike was driven, when they knew the last bike was going to be driven, they started letting the Chinese workers go in the literally hundreds and they provided no help to them whatsoever, no help to get to get to get back to China, no help to even get to the coast. And many, many, many of them ended up living in caves along the Thompson River in Thompson Plateau and and also on the, on the Fraser in, in living in caves that they dug out of the hillsides, eating rotten salmon and um, starving. And many, many of those men were taken out of those circumstances by indigenous peoples brought into their communities. They intermarried and their, their uh, descendants are still in those communities today. So there was, there's this wonderful, wonderful connection again, that, you know, in terms of the things we just don't know or just haven't been told enough about it, That's one of them. That's the fascinating story of the, of the, the relationship between the, the indigenous community and the Chinese community. I mean, it's interesting, this word connection comes up again and again. And I think one of the things that was so impressive to me about the quality of your work was this sense of connection. And now I see it happening, but that you're not just writing a story, you're connected deeply through empathy, through a kind of an expanding understanding of what we have overlooked or failed to put right that you know there is we are all connected we just you know we have just lived in this you know in this you know as you say this world where there's been a lot of erasure or overlooking but you know both of you have brought that quality of interconnectedness I think to the fore in the way that you have collaborated this I feel that in your creative um collaborations and what these books bring to us yeah and if i can just jump in and say something else is <clears throat> you know i mean what i tend to to um <clears throat> perhaps overemphasize the the negative and forget that those communities survived and did wonderful things um and uh because they they had the courage and and the <clears throat> wherewithal to or the, I don't know, I just courage more than anything to keep going, to say, no, my place is here. Um, and, uh, and this is my culture and my culture, I stand by that. And I, and it is, it is what feeds my soul. And um, I won't be, you know, I won't be broken. Um, and as you know, the, the classic situation with the, with, with Duke Sang Wong, he made sure that all of his children, went to university um, and took their place in the society, even though there was this constant effort to erase the existence of that, that, of that community. And, the, and certainly that's true in the indigenous community. Absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the, the, um, the objectives that Cecil also wanted to um, I felt was for me to be any any anybody out there who might wonder like what is that journey of having having your culture really exposed and how do you how do you start on a process of educating yourself and so throughout the book I, I try through the journaling. Um, the journal accounts, I try and expose how I fumble along and I stumble along and I continue to fumble and stumble along. Um, but the crazy questions I would ask sometimes or how um, navigating the terrain of being a settler and, and writing with somebody. I mean, it's, it's probably the most volatile um, territory in the world um, and Cecil's hope was that people could see themselves in me and see themselves to forming relationships that it's not something that is like 
well, how, how does that happen? Well, it's, it's like any relationship. It takes a long time and you can, and you, you don't give up on somebody and Cecil didn't give up on me when I just was like, I, I remember once, um, and this is actually was replicated also in, in one of the court cases with, um, the first criminal, uh, court case brought against, uh, the, in the Alberni residential school case is that I asked him once, I said, well, what were you doing like in about 1951? And he <laughs> kind of looked at me. It's like, I just didn't say anything. And, and I kind of thought back and went, yeah, it's kind of a stupid question because it shows a kind of a lack of understanding about his storytelling tradition, his oral oration, his, or his, his life experience, his, it, it just kind of, and in fact, they, it, that was some of the questioning that the lawyers um, were subjecting a lot of the residential survivors. They would say, what was the name of your grade one teacher? Mm -hmm. um, as if, if they couldn't answer it, then they would, their credibility was being put into question. So I learned about, oh, okay, this is kind of a stupid question and why and how, and, and just, those are simple things, but it it removes that fear that a lot of us have of, of embarking in a relationship with someone that is of such a completely different culture and also being the oppressive culture you're tiptoeing around is and and I mean I my my family are so the colonizers. I mean I have four sets of great great grandparents that were all arrived at you know same same boats that that um you know this your story begins david and and they were all judges and and lawmakers and and massive exploiters of resources and 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 so um i felt it was it for cecil it was part of it for him it was healing it was kind of like okay this is the conversation that i've been wanting to have with my oppressors for a long time. Mm. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. That was Bryony Penn, author of Following the Good River. And she was in discussion with David McElraith, editor of The Diary of Duke Sang Wong, and Carol Shabin, author of The Marriott Cell. If you're interested in checking out one of our storied events, we have one coming up on March 30th. The focus of that event is writing, illustrating, and publishing kids' books. You can find out more information about that event on our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. We also share news about events and our winners and finalists on our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, so be sure to find us there. Next week on Writing the Coast, you'll hear another conversation from one of our storied events. This event features Eve Lazarus, Shana Lambert, Michael Pryor, and was moderated by Fiona Tinway Lamb. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.